how to survive with almost no runway, tricks to help your company stand out in a crowd, and both the beautiful and dire relationship between story marketing and fundraising. Welcome to episode 36 with the CEO and founder of Cushion, Paul Kesserwan. You are listening to Len Jones, Party of Two, where experts and influencers speak honestly and openly about their keys to success. Sponsored by TrueFace.ai, where your face is the key. For more information on TrueFace, please contact your host at ian at TrueFace.ai. Now, pay close attention, because you're going to learn today. Oh, good day, my friends. You already know, it is a damn good day to have a good day. I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to remind you that we got work to do, people. And the more we dive deep in the people that are actually out there making those moves, it reminds us that we are fully capable of doing it ourselves. I hope you catch the gist that this podcast is way more than just finding the golden nuggets that lead to success. The more learning the life experiences of people that have done astounding things and, and get to know who they really are and what they can teach us. If we're not learning, we're losing. If we ain't growing, we're dying. If we're not eating bomb food, we're eating crappy food. And ain't none of that secondary stuff okay. If we're not eating... <clears throat> and if you're new to the podcast, our mission here is twofold. To educate aspiring entrepreneurs by dissecting the come-up stories of incredible humans by extracting the golden nuggets that you can apply now to better your life. And second, to have all my friends in my life that are making moves, to meet my other friends in life making moves, to create one giant community of extraordinary people. Now, a few years back, I did a Facebook Live with Paul during our time with the 500 Startups program in San Francisco. Paul is the CEO and founder of a company called Cushion. Cushion is a bot, the black belt in fee negotiation. The premise is simple. You connect your bank accounts, authorize Cushion to do its thing, the bot haggles with your bank and then sends you a refund for the total amount that it saved you through these bank fees. Sounds pretty sick, right? What I love about this business is that the only way Cushion makes money is that if you, the client, makes money. A simple idea with one hell of a story. And so at the end of the year, all the startups in the program get the chance to pitch their company to investors, sort of like the grand finale. This is the end product of three months via grinding through startup school. And in the final few weeks, while most were prepping their pitches, Paul's company was back at the drawing board. They realized they had to essentially redo their product from ground up and with little to no runway and a team of dedicated employees, this was one stressful situation. This podcast, Paul will tell you the story of all the weights he put on his plate and the process he went through to push through and bring his company to the next level. As of late April, Cushion just announced a seed investment of $2.8 million that shows no sign of slowing down. On this episode, you will learn tips and tricks to successful fundraising, how story marketing can make or break your business, stress management 101, and how to run your business without sacrificing all the other great things in life. Our goal here is to spread the love and have you all making moves towards your goals. I know this episode will strike a chord with you. So without further ado, let's jump into it. And we are live with the man, Mr. Paul Kesserwani. Paul, how you doing, man? Doing well, man. How are you? Bro, it's been a while. It's been a while. And I felt this shirt was fitting because- Very appropriate, yep. This is the program we got to meet, 500 Startups. Big the shout five, out. San the Francisco. 500 Unicorn shirt, yep. Hell yeah. And dude, I mean, wow. It's been a long time. I think it's been yeah. almost almost two years. Yeah, it's been almost two years now. It's crazy. And I remember during your time at 500 Startups, while a lot of these other companies were pitching and they were like really matured and they were bringing all this revenue. I remember this look on your face at the desk sitting right next to me and it was just pure like, 
kind of like, oh shit, oh shit, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And you were actually rebuilding your entire product yep. from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty uh, stressful time because a couple of things happened at that time. One is, you know, we had a little bit of a founder breakup. And so I found myself in a position where it's just me and a junior engineer staring at each other. But on top of that, um, we had been working with a data partner who kicked us off their platform because we were trying to innovate in a way that they weren't expecting their platform to be used. And so we had to take everything down, disassemble the whole thing. And we're staring at each other being like, wow, demo day is coming up. And uh, not only do we not have a pitch deck, we don't have a product. And we started to question, do we even still have a company? And so we just put our heads down and started rebuilding. So it was crazy times. Right. And those are the times that shape you and mold you and turn you into the champion you are today. But at the time, it seems like absolute chaos. At the time, it was super stressful, definitely. But we got past it. So let's bring like bring it back. Where did Cushion and this whole startup journey first begin? Um, it was mid 2016. I had uh, was basically I had left another company and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. My parents were abroad. They're in Lebanon. That's where I grew up. And uh, they had some issue with one of their banks. Unfortunately, if you're in a foreign country like Lebanon, which is a third world country in the Middle East, you don't have access to all American websites or all American banking sites. And so a lot of IPs get blocked. So my parents didn't really have access to go online and deal with their own stuff. And so I was signing in to do it for them. Found a bunch of issues, started getting very annoyed with the bank and how they were treating us. And then that led me to audit my own finances. Noticed that I had paid hundreds of dollars in bank fees and whatnot when I thought everything was on autopilot and doing great. And that led to very deep research into the consumer finance space because I was thinking, how do people who are busy or not financially educated or super broke, like how do they manage their finances and go do their full, like, you know, nine to five or two jobs and take care of their families? Like you need help. And the analogy there was, you know, for a successful company to grow, you have to bring in a CFO. They come in and manage all the finances, negotiate with vendors, reduce your waste, et cetera. And we felt like people's finances should be run like a company. You bring in somebody or something to just do full takeover. And that was kind of the initial nugget for starting the company. So when you say people's finances should be like, should be run by something outside of needing a CFO, where did that, that first idea of that passion, did it just hit you one day? Were you in the shower or was this something that you've been thinking about your whole life? Uh, no, I mean, I've, I mean, first of all, being Lebanese, we negotiate everything. So that's kind of just built into who we are as people. And we don't, we don't accept to pay full price for anything, but it was more of, um, as I dealt with the situation for my parents, I started running a bunch of experiments. So I'd go online, I called my friends, I tell them, send me your bank credentials. I'm pretty sure you've messed up at some point. I'm going to get you money back. And after doing this manually for about a hundred people and almost everyone got money back, I was like, okay, well, this is starting to get pretty crazy because there's substantial amounts of money, three, four, five hundred dollars at a time. And I thought, well, these are folks who work in Silicon Valley where they have stable lives. What about the folks who don't and for whom that five hundred dollars could make a huge difference? I did more research, found out that, you know, 78 percent of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of folks are driving around the block trying to find these payday loan places that are super predatorial. And it's just like this onion. The more I'd research, the more I'd talk to people, the more I'd uh, try out products or survey folks, the more I'd realize like, holy shit, there's a huge, huge opportunity here. And um, I wanted to kind of find a way to get in there and introduce something completely new and better in the consumer finance space. So it doesn't answer your question. I haven't been thinking about it since childhood. It's kind of one of those things where I'm like, wow, I thought I was on top of my stuff. I'm not. And I'm already more financially savvy than a lot of people. 
how the hell is everybody else functioning? And then you realize, well, there's a huge issue in the U.S. with people not being able to manage their finances properly. So a lot, of, a lot of reasons most people never get started fulfilling their dream or chasing their startup idea is they say, oh, that idea has already been done. Or that is, you know, there's X or one, two or three companies out there that are already dominating that market. Did you yeah. find that was the case in your space? Um, no, but I think a lot of people try to talk me out of getting into the consumer finance space. Everyone's like, oh man, you're too late. There's so many companies. It's only a matter of time before somebody does this. And, you know, the usual anti-motivation uh, that everyone, because they're too afraid to do it themselves and all that stuff. So um, the thing is that when you do enough research, if you have conviction, it's very hard to shake that. And if your conviction has to be founded in data, not being delusional, right? You have to be like, all right, well, I looked at the market, I talked to 500 folks, I tried every other product, and I see the gap. It's, it's clear as day to me. And so there might be a lot of companies in the space, but then you want to figure out why have they not gone and done that. And if you find enough reasons that you're like, okay, I can build a defensible business, then you just got to go for it and have everybody else, um, whether or not they like it, they're going to tell you, oh, it's too hard, et cetera. Just don't worry about it and just go. I mean, we raised a seed round and we announced a few weeks ago. And I think people still think this is a bad idea. I'm like, great, that's not a problem. And then we keep going and we keep going. But their nose and their objections start to like dwindle down over time. So just go for it. So, so taking that idea that, you know, looking at the data, looking at the deep rounding facts of why you're going to start this company or start this business, understanding the numbers. Like these are the things that kind of create these defenses in your mind when these people come and try to kind of squash your goal and squash your dream. Well, it's, that's part of it. So one of it is just like making, doing the research and making sure there's actually an opportunity. Then you're going to get, then you kind of have to put yourself in the shoes of the VCs that you're going to be pitching in six to 12 months, right? What are they going to ask you? They're going to ask you kind of, is this defensible? What's your distribution strategy? Um, what's going to be the technology advantage, et cetera. So you, you're almost better off before you start a company, go talk to a few seed investors or get, or get intros to angel investors or folks who, you know, associates at seed funds. And you can call, reach out to folks even on LinkedIn and find out what they assess for before they write their first check into a company. And then you just reverse engineer that process. You're like, okay, well, they're going to want to know about these five things. Do I have phenomenal answers? Do I have a game plan? No, let's put that together and then you get going. And that's, that's actually a golden rule of fundraising. We raised our seed round. The next day, I set up a Trello board of Series A funds and I started reaching out, not because I'm raising a Series A, but because I want to find out what they're expecting and then work backwards from that and make sure we're on the right trajectory. That, that seems like one of those golden nuggets that you almost would have wished you've known prior to yes, getting started. I, I know we spoke briefly on the phone with this prior and dude, congratulations, man. Thanks, man. Congratulations. Like, look at that. Look at that little smile. Like you It was brutal. Hard. It was brutal. You went through hell and back. Yeah. And Definitely. you're making the moves. You're still alive. You're putting food on the table for your employees and you're giving it a chance to grow. And you recently raised a seed round of how much? It was a 2.8 million. Amazing. So can give us the, the process. Like what was that whole process like? Um, the process was me being semi-misinformed and just starting the process thinking that, oh, well, we have a good team. We have a unique product with no competition, at least at that time. And we had traction. And so I thought, oh, I have all the elements to go raise a seed around. Plus, I've worked at Twitter. I have a good background. Uh, turns out that didn't really mean a whole lot. Um, <laughs> so here's where things went wrong. So I started off thinking, okay, we have, we're growing 30% every month for about six or seven months, which is great growth. Um, put together a deck, got some help with the deck, and started pitching funds. And so 
early days, I was doing five to seven pitches a day because they tell you just condense it down, condense the process, talk to a lot of folks. Well, I started doing that and things were just not going well. Folks were like, this is a feature. This is not a company. We don't see the grand vision. Um, why don't, and why don't you have revenue? Why are you just, why are you not charging your customers? I started getting a lot of pushback along the way. And at first I thought, oh, this is just the story that's broken. I need to, I need to really fix the story. Got a bunch of help, um, hired some storytellers, et cetera. Still not going so great. Um, and in the meantime, we're still growing. Like growth is still continuing, but I'm talking to folks and going through diligence with some funds. And actually very early on the process, two funds leaned in to potentially um, write us a term sheet and lead the round. And one after, I don't know, like 50 something email exchanges, the last minute they had told our investors were in, they just said, yeah, you know, we're just not feeling the space and kind of back to the drawing boards there. So that was a huge disappointment. And then after that, another fund called me up and they're like, we're going to write you a term sheet. We want to put in X amount of dollars. And I was like, great. We agreed on some terms. And then when they saw the cap table, which was a very clean cap table, they're like, wait a second, but we thought we're going to invest like 750K and own like this percentage of the company. Why does it not shake out like that? I'm like, well, you know, we have safes that need to convert. We have the kiss from 500 startups. So it has to, these all have to convert, which means you're not going to own the exact amount. And their brain could not wrap their hands around it. They're like, you know what? This seems complicated. We're out. Just to show you how, how like fickle folks are if they're not like super convinced <clears throat> about the investment. So uh, while I was bummed at the time, I thought to myself, if they really wanted to do this deal, it wouldn't have mattered. They would have just like a few fraction of a percent, nobody would have really cared. I think they're already on the fence and this gave them an out. And so what ended up happening is six months later, our company like had $6,000 left in the company bank account, 60 bucks in my bank account. I paid my employees their last paychecks uh, in December of 2018. And I thought, all right, well, we're out of money, but our product has legs and uh, people want it. And so a few things happened at once. One was our four capital who led our pre-seed round sat down with me. They're like, Paul, um, you know, we expect some companies to do well. We expect some others to be losses. We don't think your company is going to be a loss. We think it's going to be a huge win. And we believe in you. We believe in your team. And uh, we believe in what you guys are building. So we're going to write you a term sheet. Very small term sheet, but there's two conditions. One is um, you need to turn on revenue immediately. Drop everything you're doing and turn on revenue. And two is you have to... Um, you have to get it. I'm sorry. You have to get at least a million dollars committed for this first close to happen. And they're writing us a very tiny check for like 200 K. And so we dropped everything, turned on revenue. And it was like, I don't know if you've seen that meme where there's folks sitting on a train and the, tra the train tracks are running out and somebody's running out, grabbing the planks that were used prior and putting it in front of them. that's exactly kind of how we were extending our runway with our own revenue. Um, and then I just hustled my ass off and on December 28th, the last day of Friday, December 28th, I uh, closed the million, 1 million and $1,000, just enough to get the term sheet done. Um, and a lot of drama happened in the 11th hour, but we got that first part of the raise done. The second half of it, which if you, I, I can share how that went down, that was completely the opposite. I, I did some, decided to change the entire approach if you want me to share how that happened. Of course, man. This is a, this is a fundraising golden rule for anybody listening. I mean, this is a this is a real world story, and I believe you you talked to like 120 VCs before you even got a yes. Is that true? So we got what is it pitching? 
so what I have in my Trello board, I track everything in Trello and I have 110 that I formerly like recorded pitching and have notes with and 10 folks ended up doing the entire 2.8 million. Um, but a lot of it was about 70 to 80 no's before we got our first tiny little yes. And then, you know, things started to work out after that. Damn, 70 to 80 no's, man. That's the recipe. That's the recipe for success. People don't want to get that many no's, though. That's, no. a, ter- that's a lot of no's, but your, your, your conviction's real. You, you believe in your data. You believe in your product. And those little tiny wins just fill up your glass to, to take on. So let's, let's hear about the second half of the story. Sorry, one thing I will mention that was my biggest mistake that I forgot I was going to say earlier is the following. You should, you should understand the market you're in when you're fundraising. And sometimes when you're a founder, you're so heads down, you're kind of oblivious to kind of like at a macro level what's happening, right? And what I mean by that is in 2016, about 10% of seed raised, uh, seed backed companies had any revenue. Okay. By mid 2017, it was 52% of seed that companies had revenue, meaning that expectations of VCs had changed. And I didn't realize the impact revenue was going to have on the fundraise. I just didn't know that. That's a huge fail on my part. And so if you're about to fundraise or in a couple of months, that's why it's good to go talk to these VCs because you can then find out what are your expectations. And if eight out of 10 say, we expect you to have revenue, you're like, hey, oh, I'm not going to start the process just yet. Let's turn on monetization, delay the process a bit and then go out. So that was a big, big learning for me. Um, in terms of the second half of the, uh, fundraise, it was kind of insane. I had pitched, I don't know, 80, 90 funds initially. The second half, I thought I'm going to do this completely differently. We, we have a million in the bank, um, we're generating revenue and revenue was picking up. I felt I'm now in a power position. I'm not going to play this sheepish game, go meet VCs wherever they want. I'm going to completely own the process. And what I did is basically instead of talking to the, you know, and another 50 funds i talked to five that was the end of it um two found us they reached out to us one one of the funds and i'll mention their name because there's phenomenal bestigo ventures they've built a machine learning model that scours the, the web for companies that they should invest in they have tons and tons of data that sucks in and it's only found two companies for them they've actually invested in both companies and both are doing very well we were one of those um, and the other one was a financial and social impact fund. So uh, Omidyar Ventures, which is um, you know $1.3 billion fund. They reached out cold, um, and which was, which was phenomenal. And I started talking to a couple of funds. And basically the way I did this, my strategy here was, Paul, you have to like just let everybody know. You have to focus on two things. One is that um, there's demand for the round. And two is scarcity. Scarcity of how much money is left. So what I ended up doing is telling them, okay, well, based on our term sheet, our term sheet says I can raise a maximum of $2.5 million. So as I talk to them, I tell them, this was the beginning of January. I'd said, we're closing the middle of February. And I put some date, it was like February 15 or something. And by the way, the max I can raise based on our term sheet is 1.5 million. That's all that's the room in there. By the way, I'm talking to a few funds. It seems like one of them at least is one I want to do a million, maybe the whole thing. And so what that ended up doing was creating a bit of FOMO for the investors. So they're like, okay, wait a second. The max he can raise is 1.5. So there's already a ceiling in their head. Like, okay, well, that's going to fill up. And if somebody wants to put in full one to 1.5, then there might not be room for us. That pushed everybody along. Everybody started to move a lot faster. And the funniest part is a week before February 15, the VCs would ask me, they're like, so has anything changed in the fundraise, any updates, any new commitments? And 
I'm like, no, we're closing on the 15th. And um, at the time I only had 75 K committed out of that 1.5 million. And I was like, Paul, just stand your ground. And in the meantime, by the way, I had hired um, a storyteller to help me out. And she was, she's phenomenal. I was just about to ask you about that. Yeah, we had, I, I really, really put myself in the shoes of VCs and I thought, you know what, Cushion today's run on Facebook Messenger, which is not ideal. Um, it's a bot, which is, you know, like uh, VCs are over this stuff. And I thought, man, these VCs want something to really be excited about and saying I invested in a Facebook Messenger bot that whatever, it doesn't sound that great. So her and I sat down and we spent a few weeks really working on the story. And the day before a partner meeting with one of the funds, uh, we had the new story and I'm like, screw it, I'm gonna swing for the fences. I switched the entire deck to the new story. And it started off with something that a lot more sexy, which was kind of like cushion, the digital CFO for the consumer to make sure nothing falls through the cracks. And the second I said that line and I showed that to them, um, I could see everyone in the room smiling because something resonated. They're like, oh, that, that sounds cool. I, I kind of want a digital CFO. And even though that was not a tagline for the consumer, it turned out to be a great tagline for the investor. Um, so that plus standing my ground plus making them feel like another big fund was going to come take the whole deal what ended up happening is i did that partner meeting the same day they invested they committed 650k the second i did that did that got that commitment i turned around to another fund and they're like oh well i told them i'm sorry you can no longer invest up to a million 650 is taken now they're like okay we want the entire remaining amounts and so i had my 1.5 done at that point very quickly the funniest part of the raise though was um there's a smaller, not small fund, actually a fund that puts very small checks into the seed round. They'd be like, oh, maybe we'll do 50K, et cetera. Um, they tried our product, they tried our competitors, and then they reach out and they're like, hey, we want, we want in for half a million. And I told them, I'm like, guys, you said you want in for potentially for 50. My round is done now. I'm oversubscribed. They're like, you need to open up the round and make room for us. And so I ended up, the initial raise was supposed to be 2.5. I convinced our investors to expand that to 2.8. And three funds ended up doing 1.8 million for us, right? So instead, and that took 30 days. So it took six months to painfully and like get a million and almost die and 30 days to get another 1.8 and oversubscribe the round. Man, that's storytelling. That's a breakthrough moment in your, in your life. I mean, you could have saved yourself six months. Just uh, it was that plus revenue. The revenue was we 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 had some leaps in revenue that were absurd, and I think a lot of investors were like, "I don't know what's happening, but that that something's going on here, and I cannot miss out on it." And that like upswing is what caught everybody. In your opinion, at what point can you raise a, a serious round of fundraising off of just idea and hype versus when you need revenue? I mean, that's why you know the seed the seed round has been broken up into pre seed and seed. Sometimes it's now even angel pre-seed then seed and so there's so many phases um i was able to raise our pre-seed round with um which initially was supposed to be 450k ended up being 1.1 million i ended up raising that off of my background uh first product that we had built and showed that there's potential for the tech um and very few practically no users um, I don't think that will fly today, even though it's only been a year and a half since that happened. I think the expectations are getting higher with every round. That's why I say you should go talk to these pre-seed investors and find out kind of what they're expecting. Um, I've seen folks raise a million dollar pre-seed with literally nothing, not even a deck, but these are usually folks who are former founders who have an exit. So you really need to just audit yourself and be like, okay, what does my resume look like? How much confidence will listen still? How good is this idea? How flushed out is it to show that I'm going to be differentiated? But 
um, when I started fundraising the, the pre-seed, um, it was an angel's house pre-seed at one. A few folks who had worked for, they're like, Paul, we believe in you, here's money. I'm like, awesome. That was only like 85K and I needed a bunch more money. I started pitching other folks and they said, Paul, this seems cool, you're credible. Show me some product, show me something. And so I canceled all my meetings and went in a hole for a few weeks, built the first version of the product, packaged it in a beautiful like, uh, password-protected website. And then I talked to folks and they're like, oh, that sounds awesome, I'd love to see something. So I tell them, okay, I'm gonna send you these credentials to this password protected site and you can see behind the scenes what we're working on. They feel like super excited, like, oh, this, this sounds awesome, something's happening. And then I'd send them the video and, and they'd see the system in action. They're like, okay, this, this could be game changing. So yeah, it, it really varies on your background and then um, what the expectations are of those investors. Yeah. I feel like with the hardest issue for a lot of our listeners when building a company, whether that be a direct sales company, a startup, whether that even be, you know, conservation, just working on any big project. One of the hardest things to do is to stay focused and to stay focused over a long, long period of time. Our generation, there's so much exciting things going on right now in life. It's very easy to get distracted. As a founder, do you believe that you've just been laser focused from the beginning on the future of Cushion? Or do you sometimes find yourself, especially during the rough days, drifting off into thinking, you know, maybe the grass is greener on the other side. Maybe I should start a new business. Like, do you feel like the, you, you just are laser focused on Cushion? And, and if so, how, like, what do you, where does that passion just that completely fills you up come from to get over all these dark days? Um, I mean, I feel like that very colorful lion behind you in that uh, picture right there. That's kind of, that's how I think about it. I'm just like running and I just, um, I don't really think there's anything that can or will stop me. And I have this just weird, probably slightly crazy uh, part of my brain that's like, I have conviction and like literally nothing on this planet will stop me from kind of getting there. Um, and I don't know where that comes from, but I'm, I'm kind of that person, right? If I decide I'm going to get in shape, I'll stop drinking alcohol. I'll work out twice a day. I'll just like shape my whole life around doing that. And when I decided to start this company, I'm like, I'm not playing startup. I'm also not 22 years old, right? I'm 33. I am have this a couple of ad bats before, you know, have kids and et cetera. So I need to make sure that this counts. And the second I start taking money from folks who are like friends or uh, folks that I've worked for and respect, I'm like, okay, now it's not just about me. It's about people who are putting some of their money on the line. And so I'm not playing startup. I'm definitely in this mode of, I need to make this happen, but I also want to make sure that, you know, my parents have financial security. Uh, anybody who I care about is financially doing okay. This is not about buying new cars and being fancy. It's about saying I want to do something and I conquered and then the money it will be great to help folks who are important to me in my life but this is not like i think a lot of folks start companies because they're like oh ceo it sounds like an awesome title i'll get invited to events. yeah that ego ceo just means glorified janitor all day long you're just mopping shit up and you're trying to just like unblock stuff for your team the title literally means nothing um and i think if you start a company because you want that title and you want to be your own boss i wish i had a boss i wish somebody had telling me what to do all day long like awesome yeah I'll do that great i'll execute not a problem um, I think a lot of people have this romanticized version of what it is to be an entrepreneur. They look at TechCrunch, like, oh, that's me. I could be on there. Like, people have no clue how hard this is. So you just have to really want it. And then it's complete and utter tunnel vision. For me, it's to a fault, right? Like, I just alienated myself from everybody. My closest friends were like, Paul, 
we know, we know why you're doing it. We love you when we see you awesome. We don't, we know what's up. Other folks get annoyed because they think you're ignoring them and you're like, no, just building a business here. <laughs> I need to be focused. Right. Yeah. You got to surround yourself with the right people and, and yeah. put that that's in that vision. And it just goes to show you're, you're still alive. You're kicking, you're doing better than ever. And now you just upgraded to a whole new level and like every level has got a new devil and, and you're out yeah. here ready to face every one of it. But I think like, would you say that maybe your history, because you weren't always an entrepreneur from day one, you know, you were working for other companies and you were an employee. Do you believe that during your time, like, can you tell us a little bit about early life before Cushion? Um, do you think that you always knew you wanted to start a company or was it something that kind of just hit you one day where you're like, you know what, I'm sick of working for someone else? Uh, no, I mean, I definitely knew from day one that I wanted to start a company. Uh, when I when I came, so I grew up in Lebanon, came to the U.S. and I went through college here. And in, even in college, I remember I hated my major. I was a computer engineering major. I sucked at writing code. I was just miserable writing these, like sitting in these labs till midnight trying to get basic stuff to work. And I didn't get jazzed until it was time for my uh, kind of like my capstone project, which is the final project where they assess your skills. And I remember talking to this one professor who was into rock climbing. He was super fit. And I was super into fitness. I was lifting like nonstop. And he said, Paul, just work on something that you're excited about. I know you don't like the major. He's like, you've reluctantly gotten yourself to getting a good degree. But just like, this is the final push. And he's like, why don't you just work on something you're passionate about? And as, as so I'm starting to think about that. And I went to the gym that day. And I'm sitting there and I'm watching this guy doing curls but instead of like doing curls properly he's just like swinging his back and i'm like oh man this guy's gonna injure his back he doesn't know what he's doing and i got a little light bulb and i was like wow what if he's staring at the mirror what if he had like a little bodysuit on that he was doing his little weight lift and it told him like your form is out of whack you should probably straighten up and i was like that's what i want to work on for my capstone project so i told the professor went to um wasn't Nike. It was one of those Dick's Sporting Goods. I got an Under Armour compression shirt, got some neon fabric, sewed it on, and started writing this code. And I hung up the sheet in my room. So I would put on this bodysuit, stand in front of the mirror, and uh, stand in front of a camera, film it, and then wrote all this code to kind of visualize all this. And I actually built something. This is before the Wii came out, right? And I remember showing this to my professor. He's like, holy shit. He's like, you could really like build a company out of this. And at that time, I thought, Oh no, you know, I came here from Lebanon. I don't know anybody. I don't, I'm not even a good engineer. No I, don't believe know in yourself. I just felt like the path was very hard. And I thought like, Oh, if I started the company, that means I would have to write the code. I just didn't know anything to be honest with you. And at the same time, the economy was falling apart in 2008. And I thought, you know, I just really need to get a job, but the initial nugget was there. And I got my first job and it was that first week on the first job. I'm walking through the security company where I was at it's just all these beige cubicles, people looking miserable in their like 40s and 50s. I remember thinking, hell no, this is not going to be me. This is not my future. And everything about that job was like putting you in a box. Like you need to do this, this, and that. It has to be this in order. You have to clock in here, clock out there. Very and automated. Very automated. And they're like, you have to make 100 calls a day. That's how you're successful. And I actually figured out a system to make like 10 phone calls a day and I was crushing everybody. And I'd get in a fight with my boss every week. And these are the things where like you're just rebellious as an entrepreneur when somebody tells you, you have to do things this way. And you're like, this path makes no sense. I found a much more efficient way that's like 50 times more productive. So yeah, this is kind of in my blood. I'm, I think I'm a rebellious person to begin with. And so um, it just took me, took a while to accrue the skills that I needed and the network that I needed to go out. I was just trying to de-risk myself essentially before starting a company. 
Right. And you did that very well. You did that very well. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 you're live and pumping. During all of this, uh, stress management and time management is something that kills people a lot. They go all in. And this is just from my, you know, talkings with multiple people throughout my life. People go all in. They, they put everything they have into the business. They're working seven days a week, 24 hours a day, and they get burned out. You know, it's just they, they get to a point mentally where they physically can't speak to people anymore because they're just they've they've used up all their juice. What do you do? Like, what's your schedule like for you to maintain your composure to be able to find joy day to day and be as productive as you can? I think those are a few different questions. Right. So um, I find joy in my job every day because I believe what we're doing and I love my job. And so no matter how hard it is, no matter how shitty everything is, I still wouldn't trade this in for any other job in the world. And so <clears throat> I don't have to search for joy. I don't have to search for happiness. And I know, you know, most startups fail. So I also know that's always a potential outcome, but still that doesn't interfere with me being happy and loving my job. That aside, stress management, that's definitely been incredibly challenging. I think I was overly crazy when I first started. And so I'd like write code till 4 a.m., get up at 7 a.m., like just completely in a, functioning at a level that somebody a human will not be able to sustain like no way um and i think to myself up until this last december i was like man the company almost died i was like if i put five percent less energy than i did the company probably would have died and so it was reassuring knowing that putting all that effort in was worth it for stress management you know i've always been crazy into fitness and the hardest thing i've had to give up the past few years was not my money or my time uh, it's been basically not being able to work out the way I used to. And so as of recently, I made myself a resolution, and, uh, which I never do, but at the end of 2018, I'm like, 2019, Paul, you need to take care of yourself first because without you being healthy and okay, there is no company. And that meant two things. That meant putting aside time for, for fitness and working out and really taking care of myself, but also when I hire people, making sure that if they're not making my life better, they cannot stay with the company. Like I just need to surround myself with people who just took things off my plate. And you know, my girlfriend is a you know, former athlete and she's a beast. She works out like five, six days a week. And so she's really been kicking my ass and forcing me to go to Pilates and stuff. And it's been very effective. Pilates. Is that oh, I thought I was like, Oh, Pilates, whatever. Got my ass kicked. It was brutal. Really? Brutal. And I, and I was like, I'm a pretty good shape guy in general. And I got my ass handed to me. Shit. Yeah. Got to get on that Pilates life. And I, I've done, I do the Stairmaster Jones all the time, right? I do 100, 100 floors on the Stairmaster and all that stuff. Went to Pilates. My, my legs were just wrecked. Stairmaster Jones challenge. Once I get my tibial tendonitis and my leg fixed, we're going to start that back up. Oh, whew. Stairmaster is the all-time best form of cardio, in my opinion. Like, it's amazing. Like, you want to you look phenomenal. You want to get fit. You want to get abs. You want to get that booty you've always wanted. Stairmaster, you climb your way to the top. It's just amazing. Yep. And there's something empowering about the Stairmaster. You're always just elevated over everyone else in the gym. You're like, hell yeah. You get that stoop effect. Or you're I, think, like, I think maybe that's what you're thinking about. I'm just thinking about how much time do I have left on this thing. I'm just trying to plow up to my 100 floors as fast as possible. <laughs> and I'm usually listening to podcasts, by the way, while I'm on there. I'm just listening to other stories and I'm climbing and I'm listening to entrepreneurs talking about their metaphorical climb. <laughs> It's so crazy. The metaphorical climb. That's a great. I'm going to write that down. I got to remember that metaphorical climb. Oof, that's a good, that's, that's a, that's a money thing. So in terms of productivity hacks, like what would you say that like, have you learned any like certain things, like maybe structuring your day a certain way that has led you to become more efficient? 
Um, I don't think I have any productivity hacks. I just, you know, I've, before I started the company, I read so many books and listened to so many like smart folks who've kind of been there and done that. Um, one thing Reed Hoffman said was about, you know, inbox zero is like the dumbest thing ever. He's like, you should not be responding to every email that comes into your inbox. He's like, he's like, when things come in, I respond to the top, you know, 3%, anything else is just whatever. And the most important things will resurface. And so I, I've completely adopted that. So my inbox is like a thousand unread emails and these can't all be important. So the ones that are, I have a system of flagging them and they get put aside. The rest, I just completely ignore. And if something resurfaces, then it's probably more important than the rest. But if that's helped me productivity wise, or else as a, as a CEO, there's like two parts to your job. One is reacting to the world. The other is being proactive. You want to minimize the amount of time you're just reacting to everybody else and responding to your investors you want to be proactively unblocking your team paving the path making sure you're staying the course and the inbox is just a, it's a mess it's like you end up being a slave to other people's demands and requests and like i don't have time for that i love that and in terms of like if you could go back in time now like this is kind of one of those things that i think is is always gets me fired up it's one of like the the passions and joys behind the the podcast and the journey of any high performing human that's just yeah. making moves and that goes beyond making money that just goes on being happy you know what i mean yeah. i think for me that's the most exciting thing in, in human life you could have a hundred million dollars you could have five dollars but if you're just like this genuinely stoked happy person you're someone yeah. to be around yeah um, but it's like these lessons that we wish we could have known. Obviously, the best way to learn is to fail fast, move yeah. forward, make decisions, jump into the unknown, get your ass kicked, and then get back up. But if you could go back to, say, right after college and whisper one, two, or three things and tell yourself, you're like, Paul, we got 60 seconds, homie. Actually, no, you got, you got as much time as you want. But you can tell yourself three things that would have saved you a ton of time, money, and probably just ginormous headache what were those possible things you would have told yourself as a as a 33 year old person to a 21 year old former you um it's a I think loaded question it's a loaded question i think for a few, few things one is um i've kind of earlier in my life when i came from lebanon to the u.s i was always trying to like kind of fit in here like oh i want to fit into the american way i want to fit in i want to fit in and a lot of my mindset even was college like oh how can i do things to fit in and then at one point I was just like, fuck that. Let's stand out. I'm not trying to fit in anymore. And I wish I had kind of like switched into that mindset much earlier on being like, you want to be, you want to excel, you want to get somewhere else. Then you got to be different to everybody else. Don't worry about fitting in, stand out and watch other people, you know, come to you instead. So I, I think I wish I had had that in my brain a lot earlier than I did. It kind of flipped at one point in my twenties, later in my twenties. Um, that's one piece of advice. Another piece of advice is, to just have the confidence to go for it. I, I had, when I was at Twitter, uh, there was a problem internally that I was remember solving and thinking, God damn, I could probably build this product and sell it to every company out there. Like this, everybody's probably dealing with the same problem. And I talked to a couple of other companies like Uber and Airbnb at the time, and they were having similar issues. Um, and I thought I should go for it. I should go for it. And I started working on it a little bit on the weekend, but I was working so hard that I thought there's no way I can pull this off in parallel. And I'm like, okay, it's fine. And then three years later, another company decided to go build that exact same thing and they're just completely crushing it. And so one is that's so what that second lesson would be just have confidence and go for it when it, go for it earlier. Right. Like I started a company when I was 30. Um, by the time I was at Twitter, like I'd been there for four years, I could have left after the two year mark and started my own thing. 
And that would have been a whole two years of being an entrepreneur founder and all those learnings. Um, so yeah, want to stand out to is, uh, be confident and start, start the entrepreneurial path earlier. It's a third thing I'd tell myself. Um, be careful who you get advice from. I think a lot of folks give you advice and everyone has their learnings, but unfortunately their learnings are just very much based on their own life experience. It doesn't mean they're going to really apply to you. And so one, one core value we had at Twitter was, was the seek diverse perspectives. We always talked about that. And so uh, instead of getting advice from one or two really smart people, get advice from like 50 people who have all different backgrounds and then aggregate that, but still formulate your own thoughts. I think people like get starstruck. They're like, oh, this really smart, accomplished person said I should do it this way, which means I should probably do that. And I learned the hard way after a while, like it doesn't matter what they've accomplished. I have a completely different path. I should get a bunch more feedback from different folks and then go do my own thing. Yeah, those are powerful lessons. I mean, it's like, these are the things that if you can implement into your life, you're going to become so much like a little, little superhuman. It's like, I need to make a compilation of all of those three lessons from every podcast. That would be a really cool thing. That's just throw me out there. Cause those are the money makers. Those are like the, the life hacks, the keys that have got you to where you are that have paved you and made you the Paul you are today. And have prepared you for being a CEO, for being able to be a glorified janitor that actually cleans up. That is so true though with startups. Like you look at a CEO of a massive company and it's typically just like this glorified position. But when you look at startup CEOs, they, they're like, have these giant smiles, but deep under there, they're just like, you know, they got this face of like, oh shit, like there's a whole line of stuff to do. And I feel like you never really accomplish everything, like based on from what I've yeah. seen, there's always something to do. Yeah. And then just alleviating that stress and knowing you can do what you can do. And I like what you said, you're answering the top 3% of your emails, not wasting your time, guiding the company, not being reactive, being proactive. That really hit home. Nice. Yeah. By the way, I don't believe in like, I mean, I know there's a lot of hacks and there's a lot of stuff. People like love growth hacks. Like how can I get there faster? I just feel like everyone has a different path. Some people are meant to go the longer path because they have more lessons they need to learn. Other people are ready and they can skip steps along the way. And some people just get lucky. Right. Uh, so I think people shouldn't be too focused on finding fast ways to succeed. They should right. be fine. They should be more self-aware and audit themselves. Be like, what do I need? Like, what am I great at? What am I shitty at? Who, what's the person I need to compliment me? What are the things I need to really accomplish before I can go do this thing instead of what's the fastest way to get there and how do I skip steps? Because whatever those steps are that you skip, that skip um, you'll get to a point in the future where you're going to face a problem and be like, damn, I never got to learn that thing. And then you're going to pay the price for it later. So, and then, and then just getting to a point where you just don't psych yourself out before you go accomplish something new, you know, like just jumping into the unknown, being able to jump into the unknown without getting, overwhelmed without freaking out but just be like oh this is all part of the process yeah i think this is the thing that i tell everybody i tell my team and i think they all get it um we've had some really 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 dark and hard times and i tell everybody like it's supposed to be this hard so just em embrace it it's this is the path this is where everybody else suck. well it's like oh no just that i tell them this is where everybody else gives up this is what differentiates us from everybody else like we work at a corporate space everyone goes home at 6 p.m we're here till midnight and 2 a.m every night Right. And so everybody, we want it more than everybody else. It's supposed to be this hard. If you embrace that and you remind yourself like, oh yeah, but this is a startup. Most of them fail. It's supposed to, shit's supposed to hit the fan and it's hitting the fan. Awesome. 
I'm going through the proper journey. Now let's get past it. Um, if you switch to that mindset, then you're never like psyched out of anything. Oh, another bad thing happened. Cool. Add it to the list. Let's work on it. As opposed to freaking out. You have to remove that emotional piece of like, oh my God, how could this happen to us? That's just wasted energy. It's negativity. You don't have time for that. Right. It's like, yo, this is it. We're on the path, baby. This is the calm before the storm. Get ready, yeah. homies. Like this is what's gearing yeah. us up. So true. So true. And it's exciting too when you see these. Your team has always loved you. That's one thing I've always really, really admired about you. Your team really looks up to you, um, and that's amazing. It's just I always remember looking over at my desk at 500, just like, yo, Paul, that dude's got that dude's got his team behind him. Like they would go to bat for you, and I think that's because you would do the exact same for them. And you know, you really care about your team and your people, and you're leading by example. You're staying up all night when you got to, and you're fighting the good fight. So I think that's just a lot to say about your character and you as a person. Thank you. No, I appreciate that. I, th I think the big part there that the win for me is one, I, <clears throat> I do try to lead for, by example. I want everyone to know that like I'll push harder than everybody else combined if necessary. And they know that like, that's just a fact. But the other part is just being part therapist as a, as a founder. So everyone's really busy, including myself, but I always try to be conscious about checking in with the team. And so it's not just like, Hey guys, how's it going? Not the generic crap, but sometimes you have to know the personalities of your the folks on your team and be like, this person, I'm going to have to ask four or five times and I have to have to ask very specific questions to tease out of them what they're working on or what they're frustrated about. And I started to learn like for each person on the team, what's the best way to get them to vent to me? And as a, and as a result of that, everyone, when they chat with me, they'll have their little release. They'll get it off their chest and all that. And so that's been a technique that's worked really well for me. And another part is um, me uh, taking ownership of, of failures, right? So when things go bad, like guys this is where i messed up i shouldn't have done this blah 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 because when things are going badly employees expect the founder to think that it's one of them that caused that problem so when i stand up in front of everybody like i messed up here i messed up there this is what i'm going to do better next time that everyone feels a bit relieved they're like okay well he's not dumping this on us he's taking ownership and so it's just a combination of things that this is why if you start a company out of college and you never manage people, you'll probably figure it out. But I got the fortune of managing a bunch of people at Twitter and adjusting as a manager there. So by the time I did it at Cushion, I had some, some experience. Now, this is like the, 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 the biggest golden nugget of the podcast. And it's, it has to do with, you know, what would you say to that person that is currently, say, working a nine to five that is maybe either just making awful money. They feel unfulfilled. They feel like they're in a box, a cubicle. They're almost like a slave to their job. They just mentally are not stimulated and they just want to do something, but they don't know what it is, but they just want to take that jump. Or the person that's making two, 300K a year, working the dream job, like great lifestyle. They got a Tesla. Life's great. But deep down, they feel still almost stuck. They feel like they're not living life to their fullest. They're not in their potential. They have a dream. They want to start. They want to start their own business. Yep. They want to escape the nine to five. But just something's holding them back. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's scared of failing. Uh, maybe it's multiple things. What would you say to that person that's like right on the cusp of making the leap to take the first step to start their own gig? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I personally don't like giving blanket advice because every single person's situation is different. If you have like a wife and kids and a mortgage, you have financial responsibilities and I can't be like, yeah, go for it, whatever. Just like everything will figure itself out. No, that's a horrible, it's horrible advice. Right. And so if you're somebody like that, you should 
talk to your spouse, find out like, are they making money? Will they be able to like pick up the slack if you're going to actually make the jump? Are your kids too young? Can you wait two years before you do this? There's a lot for folks who have those responsibilities. Now, if you don't, if you're like single or if you have a girlfriend, boyfriend, but don't have kids yet and don't have a lot of financial responsibilities. Yeah. Then I'd say just really, really research. Uh, well, before that, first of all, I want to ask them the most important question is why, why, why do you want to do this? And if it's like, Oh, I want to, you know, like have a better title or I want to work for myself. I'm like horrible, horrible fucking answer. Right. So you want to make sure that there's actually a problem that they're passionate about solving, or they feel like the world will be a better place because of the product they're putting out there. Like, I love what you guys are doing with true face and how I'm just seeing it in all these different applications that I never would have imagined when I met you guys. I'm like, wow, these guys are an awesome company, but also, you know, putting something out there that's going to make the world a better place to live in. That's amazing. Right. And so figure out like the why, why do you want to do this? And it all stems from there. And then if I, they say something that's really compelling, like I've had this problem in my life or my family and I've identified that there's like 10 million people who are having the same issue and I think you can solve it. I'm like, okay, that's great. Um, why else do you want to do this? And just, you have to really dig into, people need to audit themselves a little bit. And if you want to get paid a lot of money, go work at Amazon, go work at Facebook. They pay really well. They have beanbag chairs and pizza and all that good shit. So just go live that life. If you want to build something or if there's something like a fire burning inside of you, mean like I have to start a goddamn company, it's bursting out of me, then yeah, you should definitely go do it. Uh, but there's no blanket advice you can give people. People just have to audit themselves. Audit themselves, amazing. Dude, Paul, it's always such a pleasure to meet you because you're just always growing as a human. You're just always offering so much value. And, and that's just because you're out there. You're a value creator. You're someone that's going out there and making jobs. You're paving the future. You're, you're out there leading the good fight. And someone listening to this is going to be inspired to take that leap of faith because of these lessons that you've went through. And you're doing it with a smile, man. You're intense though. You're intense. Like you, you go from that weightlifting mentality where you're like, let's get it to like, let's go. Like you, you're I am, passionate, I am, man. I am too intense. And I think that's a big, it's a blessing and a curse for me for sure. There are times where I just need to like mentally just flip back. When I first started dating my girlfriend three years ago, she's like, I started dating you because you were super calm. She's like, what happened to that guy? Like that guy started a company and it's very hard to go from this intense battlefield mode every day because like i feel like a startup is like a warrior okay you wake up you put on your armor and you're like i'm gonna slash everybody in my path to get to where i need to go and then come home and it's hard to just completely switch back and that's not really fair to, to other people in your lives but it's something i need to get better at for sure awesome well hey paul it's been a pleasure man how can the people follow the cushion story maybe on follow you on social media how can people get more paul in their life um i mean First of all, I'd love for folks to try out Cushion. If you go to cushion.ai, you can check it out, probably get a bunch of free money back. Um, I always appreciate all the feedback there. And then um, you can follow like me on, on Twitter at the Paul K. Um, I'll send my handle over to Len Jones. Um, but yeah, I mean, luckily we've had a lot of press recently. So if you Google like Cushion bank fees, you'll see us in the press or TechCrunch announcement, et cetera. So there's a bunch of ways to reach us in all those articles too. Amazing. The story of cushion. Let's go. We all need a nice cushion. I need a cushion for this chair right now. Yeah. A cushion for my bank. I got to hook you up with a cushion hoodie. I just put in an order. I'll send one of your way. Oh, damn. Hell yeah. We're yep. All of a sudden, my bank accounts are all cushioned too. So thanks yep. so much, man. I really appreciate you. And thanks for having me. And for the journey. Thank you for listening to another episode of Len Jones Party of Two. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and subscribe to stay up to date on our new episodes. And remember, hope is not a strategy. Keep making moves. Till next time.
Peace.